Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to keep in step with your spirit today. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you do so many things. You, you wait on the wings of the stage and you cause all the attention to move toward Jesus and to move toward the Father. Would you, would you help us now? Would you grant us the gift of illumination? Would you bring conviction of sin? Would you bring awareness of your presence by riveting our attention on your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, this is uh, Palm Sunday in John's gospel, and so help us to, uh, to get into that frame as we welcome our king, our crucified and risen and soon to return king. In Jesus' name, amen. The focus of last week's sermon was that life in Jesus' name is the very reason that he came. The good news of Jesus Christ is to be believed, and that means that by God's grace it is to be lived. Faith in Jesus Christ is trust that transforms you. That's my definition of what it means to believe. This is what belief is. Belief is faith, it's trust in Jesus Christ that transforms you. Life in Jesus' name is the very reason that he came. And so last week we focused on three aspects of living for Jesus that was drawn from John chapters 11 and 12. And if you haven't opened a Bible to John chapter 12, now's a good time to do that. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. It's 899 in the Red Bibles. 899 in the Red Bibles. Last week, we talked about three aspects of living drawn from the text in John's gospel. What does it look like when Christ is your life? We saw three truths last week. When Christ is your life, you take risks with Jesus. When Christ is your life, you lavish your resources on Jesus. And when Christ is your life, you reach unbelievers for Jesus. Risking, resourcing, reaching. That's life. That is life in Jesus' name. I hope that if you memorize any single verse from the Gospel of John, that it would be John's theme verse in John chapter 20 and verse 31. Gospel according to John chapter 20 verse 31, John says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in Jesus' name is the very reason that he came. Now, Here's where last week's text meets this week's reality. You ready? The irresistible force will meet the seemingly immovable object. Here it is. Living for Jesus looks like dying to the world. Amen. 
Thank you, brother. If you are going to follow Jesus, allow me to call your attention to a truth that you're going to want this morning and in the days ahead. Living for Jesus looks like dying to the world. There is perhaps, I say perhaps because I don't know for sure, but perhaps no single culture on the planet more inhospitable to the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus than this one. Now, I didn't say harder to be a Christian. It's not harder to be a Christian in America. It's harder to be a Christian in North Korea. It's harder to be a Christian in Kazakhstan. But I think if we were to take last week's three points and lay them alongside the expectations of our culture, there is no culture on the planet today more inhospitable to our mission. And there's no culture more prone to making fake disciples of Jesus than ours. You tell me, when Jesus is your life, you move toward risk, not security. When Jesus is your life, you give away your resources. You don't accumulate them. When Jesus is your life, you have really awkward conversations with people. You seek to introduce them to the only one who can save them, refusing to respect their personal, private, spiritual space. You feel this tension? I hope so. I want to encourage you to hop into a community group this week and take a spin through this study guide that's provided for you in the reverse side of your sermon notes. It's a study that's simply designed to help you count the cost of our mission to our culture. On the left-hand side of the ledger are 17 common marks of success for spirituality, for for churches in our culture, celebrated by our world. And on the right-hand side of the ledger are 17 common results of faithfulness in following Jesus. There are scriptures that are linking the two columns together. And what I want to suggest to you is that faithfulness to our mission often yields results that look like failure in our current cultural context. Yes, they do. Another way to say this is that living for Jesus looks like death. It looks like dying to the world. There's two points in today's sermon. Just make each of them in turn, and then we'll proceed to drive home the application based on these two truths. Here's the first point today. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations. Look with me at John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Okay. Verse 12 of John's Gospel in chapter 12, we arrive at Palm Sunday. Never mind that our Palm Sunday this year, 2014, is not for another nine weeks, I assure you. We've got a ways to go, but John is already there. That means that for the next two months, our church will be walking through the pivotal last seven days of Jesus' earthly life. We will take about nine weeks to observe one week. That's how John's gospel is set up. Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday is the final week of Jesus' life before he was resurrected. And as he arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, let's note three things. First, let's note the crowd's reception of Jesus. Uh, The crowd's reception of Jesus appears quite encouraging on the front end of things, doesn't it? Verse 13 says, They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Palm branches have a long and storied history through Uh, the people of Israel. They were traditionally a feature of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, They were also a part of the Jewish Feast of Dedication. But that was ancient stuff. By the turn of the first century, palm branches, although still very popular, had taken on more political than spiritual connotations. They were a very common picture. Palm leaves were of victory. And triumph for many people. That's why Roman coins featured palm branches on them. It had nothing to do with Jewish ceremonies. So waving these branches was reflective of more nationalistic concerns than sacred ones. And while they do shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, we've we got to consider the context again. Uh, they're quoting Psalm 118, verse 25. And they use a word there for them, Hosanna, that even for them was old school. This is Hebrew, and no one here is speaking Hebrew. Classical Hebrew is simply a matter of uh, scholarly language at this point. It is a great word. Uh, that translated, I never knew what this meant until last week. The word Hosanna means save us now. It means, Lord, save us. That's great. So when we sing that, enjoy it. This is a wonderful word in the right hands. But these folks didn't speak Hebrew. And so by the early part of the first century, language like this had lost much of its religious thrust. And it was really just political sloganeering is all it was. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when Americans gather at political rallies 
wave our flag and sing Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, I, I like the words to Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's just that most people who sing them in our culture have no idea what they're singing. And they don't believe that God is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, like the book of Revelation suggests. Most Americans have no idea what they're singing, and I wonder if something might be true of the people who received Jesus on the first Palm Sunday. Note, too, why the crowd gathered in the first place. What does verse 17 say? The reason why the crowd went out to meet him is that they heard that he had raised Lazarus from the tomb. They heard he had done a sign. Some of them hadn't even seen it. They just heard about it. What's drawing them? Jesus' words or Jesus' works? His works. What do these folks want? Do they want a savior from sin or do they want a savior from political oppression? Political oppression. So we need to note their reception of him. Second, let's briefly note Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. His, his, act, his actual ride, I'm using that in a slang term, his ride into Jerusalem. <laughs> the crowd wants a king, no doubt. Jesus certainly is a king. But he will not pander to them by mounting a white steed and charging into old Jerusalem. He knows they have him all wrong. Political, nationalistic expectations of him are starting to heat up. So you know what he does? He throws cold water all over that fire. And he takes a donkey. Not a beast of nobility. A beast of burden. A lowly, humble, servile animal. Riding into Jerusalem on a donkey for a leader in the first century would be like a presidential candidate in 2016 riding into Washington in a Kia Soul or a Nissan Cube or something. It's just like, huh, I thought he'd have a nicer car. This was prophecy. Uh, Zechariah 9.9, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting in a Pontiac Aztec. That's weird. A donkey? Are you sure? You don't want a war horse, Jesus? Why does Jesus do this? Because he's not the king? No, he's the king. He's the king. He's just not the king they were expecting. Gentle, humble, serving, dying. Don't miss Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. Third, notice the Pharisee's response to the crowd. In spite of his mode of transportation, uh, Jesus is unable to shake his popularity. So the Pharisees say something fascinating in verse 19, don't they? Uh, so the Pharisees said to one another, See, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, they didn't mean it the way it sounds. Um, in his commentary, C.K. Barrett points out that what they were saying is that everybody's taken this guy's side. The whole world's gone after him. Now, what's great about this statement is that it's far more accurate than they realize like so much in John's gospel, this phrase is deep. It's so deep what they say. 
Take a look at the next three verses in John's Gospel, starting in chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. What's going on here? You know what's going on here? Pharisees are right. The whole world's gone after him. In ancient Judaism, there were two sorts of people on the planet. There were Jews and Gentiles. There was Israel, and there was the nations. There's the Hebrews, and then everybody else, the Greeks. Now, these folks who talk to Philip and want to see Jesus, these guys are probably God-fearing Greek proselytes, Jewish converts at some point or another. And for John, this is huge because it's John who tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. That's right. The whole world's gone after him. Everything's clicking into place. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus is not simply a local hero or a tribal deity, but rather a cosmic savior. In our 21st century pluralistic culture, Christ is the final word of God. In our yeah, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth is my truth culture. Jesus is still the truth, the way, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. This is incendiary language in America today. This is inflammatory truth, even among professing Christians. Sadly, even among local pastors group I was at lunch with this past Thursday. This is controversial stuff. So let's be clear. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations. Amen? Here's why this is important. If we don't treasure this truth, we won't see our way to the second point today. So here's Point two, hooking on to point one. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations, and the pathway to his crown was through the cross. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations, and the pathway to his crown was through the cross. Notice we've just seen that the whole world has gone after Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And now we'll pick up the reading in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have 
come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Notice that it's the arrival of the Gentiles to see Jesus in Jerusalem that triggers all of this death language isn't it? Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been careful to explain that his hour had not yet come. So in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus says to the woman at the well, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. In chapter 7, verse 30, John tells us that although they were seeking to arrest him, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Similarly, again, in chapter 8, verse 20, John says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And here we are for the first time in John's gospel, though not the last time, we see that something has happened that never has before. The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's already being glorified, right? By the Passover crowd. How is he going to be glorified? His death, verse 24. He's going to lose his life, verse 25. He's going to be lifted up from the earth, verse 32. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, verse 33. The light is among you for just a little while longer, verse 35. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations, but his pathway to his crown was through the cross. By design, the hour had come. You might think, why doesn't he just avoid the cross? I mean, if he's the king of all nations. And if you're thinking that way, you're, you're certainly not alone. Uh, the Passover crowd was wondering too. They were perplexed. Jesus alludes to his crucifixion in verse 32. John confirms that he is talking about crucifixion in verse 33. And then we read in verse 34, So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man is to be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? If you're with us today and you're wondering why we follow a crucified king, you're in good company. 
It's a fair question. It's a question that even troubled the king himself. Both the agony of the question and the answer to the question are found in the words of Jesus in verses 27 and 28. Jesus says in verse 27 that his soul is troubled. You know why? Because his perfect obedience to his father meant trouble for his soul. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But here in chapter 12, verse 27, he's coming to grips with the unavoidable fact that he cannot both please his father and save his life at the same time. What's he going to do? He always does the things that are pleasing to his Father. Well, what if, as the prophecy said in Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to crush him? You see why his soul is troubled? This is not an easy situation. What's Jesus made of? You know what he's made of. Love. Love. Love for sinners and love for the glory of God. Verses 27 and 28 show us both the agony and the answer. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations. And his pathway to his crown was through his cross. And Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us that Jesus' desire to be satisfied and Jesus' desire for his Father to be glorified were not at odds. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. For the joy set before him. Jesus is not trading down here. He's going down, but he's not trading down. He's trading up. The cross is the moment of his ultimate triumph, not his ultimate tragedy. So the answer to the crowd's question, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? It's ultimately found in the words of Jesus in Mark 10, 45, isn't it? Where Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life gladly, a ransom for many. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you not to serve Jesus today. Let him serve you. For the overflow of his joy and for the glory of his Father, let him serve you with his life, with his death. May God grant everyone in this room to come to Jesus Christ, to come to him, to let him serve you. Jesus Christ is the king of all nations and the pathway to his crown was through the cross. He did it for his joy. He died for sinners.
So, what's the practical application of this text for followers of Jesus today? Well, I think it's right here in his own words, in verses 24 to 26, isn't it? Starting in verse 24, Jesus says, and he says it to Mount Free Church today, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you are a follower of Jesus today, to what do you need to die in order to take your next step with him? Do you need to die to popularity or to the praise of people. Perhaps you need to crucify your craving to be first or to be safe. Who is Christ calling you to hang in there with in love? Or, to put it another way, who do you love too much in this world. You know you need to end the relationship in order to bring glory to Jesus Christ that doesn't honor the Lord. Is there something that you're involved in that needs to die or end, an addiction of some kind? What are you afraid of that he's calling to you, that he's calling you to? Are you afraid of weakness or servanthood? or obscurity, or slander, or persecution? What is the hard choice that you need to make today in order to display to the world that Jesus Christ is better than life? And if he's your life, that he's your joy. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because it's more of Jesus. Last in line, making others rich, persecution, obscurity, evangelistic intensity, global gospel advance, local missional risk of some kind or another, all for joy. It's all gain. It looks like death to the world. But it's all for joy. Let me encourage you that the more sin to which you will die, the more fruit you will bear and the more joy you will know. If you choose not to cater to your flesh, you will keep your soul for eternal life. And hear the promise of the Savior in verse 26. It doesn't get any better than this. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Even if everybody else dishonors you. The Father will honor you. That's good news. Living for Jesus looks like dying to the world. Jesus 
Christ is the king of all nations, and the pathway to his crown was through the cross. The message this morning to those who do not believe is to believe by embracing the cross. The message to those who believe is to believe by embracing the cross. Next weekend is the Mount Free You seminar entitled Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, Learning, Loving, and Living God's Written Word. Everyone here is invited. Uh, times and details are in your bulletin. Next Sunday's sermon is going to be on the topic of this seminar. I'll be preaching a message called This Book, Six Convictions Every Christian Ought to Have About the Bible. I can't wait. Right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is not a, a difficult message to understand. It's just difficult to apply. Would you please come with your grace and lavish forgiveness on your people? Lord, all who are willing to turn from sin and put their faith in you, may they be saved by grace through the trust in the cross of Calvary. We pray too, Father, that this trust would be a trust that transforms us. I ask, Lord, that we would live out all of our lives before you. I pray that every area of our discipleship, every area of our minds and our hearts and our wills and our mouths would be open to you. And Lord, though it look like death to the world, may we exhibit for the world to see that Jesus Christ is our life. For the glory of Jesus, we ask it and for our great joy. Amen.